I am sitting under a table with my blazer over my head because this conference is like has tens of thousands of people roaming around and airplanes flying overhead. That's climate reporter Sarah Kaplan. And there's not that many quiet places to record an interview. So Sarah, where are you right now? Um, I am in the media center at the COP27 venue in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, on planet Earth. (laughs) (laughs) Important distinction. Earth is top of mind at COP27, which stands for the 27th meeting of the Conference of Parties. It's this big yearly United Nations conference that began this week. And right now, thousands of government officials and others from all over the world have gathered in Egypt to negotiate the best ways to combat climate change. Sarah says it's been chaotic, occasionally inspiring, and also somewhat terrifying. I mean, this COP happens at a time when the the toll of climate change and and the sort of very dangerous trajectory that the planet is currently on have become quite clear. We are in the fight of our lives and we are losing. And Secretary General Antonio Guterres talked about that um, in his opening remarks at this COP. He described how urgent it is that that we shift the direction that we're heading in. Greenhouse gas emissions keep growing. Global temperatures keep rising. And our planet is fast approaching tipping points that will make climate chaos irreversible. We are on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Friday, November 11th. Today, we're going inside COP27 with Sarah, and the big contentious issue being debated there right now. Should richer countries foot the bill when it comes to climate disasters? Just on Friday, President Joe Biden spoke at the gathering, promising the U.S. is doing its part to avert that, quote, climate hell. We're not ignoring harbingers that are already here. It's true. So many disasters. Climate crisis is hitting hardest those countries and communities that have the fewest resources to respond and to recover. But as Sarah tells us, these hardest hit countries want financial help from Europe and the United States, the places responsible for high carbon emissions. Today, we explore what that could look like in practice and whether there are any slivers of hope at this climate conference. And and so, Sarah, what is the major discussion at this year's COP? Yeah, so this year's COP is what they call the implementation COP, um, which, you know, I can tell your eyes are already glazing over, (laughs) but it basically means like, you know, trying to hammer out the details of what needs to happen to get countries to follow through on all of these big commitments that they need to try to curb their emissions and tackle climate change, and also how to get them to increase those commitments, to be more ambitious in their pledges. Um, But right before the COP started, um, 
the uh, coalition of developing nations that negotiates together called the G77 um, had proposed adding an agenda item around creating a fund for what is called loss and damage. Loss and damage is kind of the UN technical jargon for the irreversible harms of climate change that can't be avoided because they are the result of catastrophes that are just so severe that that there's no way for people to prepare. So when we talk about this loss and damage related to climate change, what does that look like for some of these countries? Yeah, I mean, loss and damage manifests in a lot of ways. It's coastal erosion from sea level rise. It's terrible famines that are linked to prolonged droughts. It's someone losing their home in a hurricane or a wildfire. And it's also, it can be loss of culture or identity when, you know, a landscape that is maybe sacred to a community disappears. But I think that the most um, apparent example of loss and damage that everyone is talking about here are these horrible floods that happened in Pakistan earlier this year. Yeah, I I think we all remember those, the severe floods that resulted in hundreds of deaths. How is that country dealing with that right now? And what are the conversations at COP like around what happened in Pakistan? Yeah, so, I mean, the scale of it was just horrific. Basically, a third of Pakistan was underwater. More than 30 million people were affected in some way. Uh, Huge numbers of people were displaced and now have no home, no shelter. They've lost their livelihoods because their farmland has flooded. They don't have access to clean water. They don't have access to food. And the World Bank estimates that the the damage caused by these floods is about $30 billion, which is like a tenth of Pakistan's GDP. And so the Pakistani government and the UN Secretary General and advocates for loss and damage finance say that this is a perfect example of why the world needs a a dedicated fund to deal with these kinds of things. Because in a disaster like this, there are lots of different kinds of humanitarian responses that can happen, but a lot of them are not immediate and they're not guaranteed. And so that's why they say there needs to be a loss and damage fund that a country like Pakistan could immediately draw on it, immediately start purchasing medical supplies and food and and tents and shelters, and, and it would be guaranteed and right away, and it wouldn't have strings attached to it. But, but I did want to dig in a little more deeply into the idea of a fund. And, and I'm curious, like, what is that conversation like there? Is it, I would imagine it's, it's not an easy one, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, so, you know, the, the, the logic behind loss and damage is that the countries that are experiencing the worst impacts of climate change are not the countries that have contributed most to emissions, right? Pakistan's current level of emissions is less than 1% of like the global annual total. The emissions from the entire continent of Africa are less than 4% of the global total. And yet that continent is experiencing some of the worst impacts of climate change. Wow. Yeah. And they say like, we are suffering, right? We are suffering in very real ways. Lives are being lost. Livelihoods are being destroyed Um, from a problem we didn't cause. And the U.S. and the EU combined 
are responsible for about half of all of the, more than half of all of the carbon that's in the atmosphere um, from human activities since the industrial revolution began. And so they say, you know, there's a, there's an obligation, a moral obligation. Um, and a just, you know, some people would argue a, a legal obligation um, for the US and, and the EU and other, you know, high emitting countries to um, provide some financial compensation for, for the damage that climate change has caused. And that's obviously quite fraught, right? Because mm. the damage that climate change causes is amounts in the trillions. The bill keeps getting higher with every year that we fail to reduce emissions. And wealthy nations are quite worried about the idea of being held liable for all of that damage, particularly the US. Um, they've argued for years, you know, really trying to tweak the language around loss and damage that winds up in these agreements to, you know, clarify that it doesn't imply compensation and it doesn't imply liability. Where is this conversation right now about an actual fund? Where's that money going to come from? What are some of the ideas that are being discussed right now? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the um, most interesting, although quite politically challenging ideas that's out there is actually something that was raised by the UN Secretary General himself, which is that he has called for nations to tax windfall profits of fossil fuel companies and direct that money towards a loss and damage fund. I mean, I've been talking to a lot of people about loss and damage, um, but certainly, you know, one of the most compelling voices is the lead negotiator for Pakistan, um, Ambassador Munir Akram, who also happens to be the chair of the G77, this group of developing nations. You know, the chair of these negotiating groups rotates, and this is, happens to be Pakistan's turn. But Ambassador Akram is actually from Sindh, which is one of the provinces that was hardest hit by these floods. Five, six times the amount of rain that we had, highest recorded hit in history. Uh, so, with the rivers full, canals full, the water just overflowed. And his family farm, um, you know, the land that has been in his family for generations, was decimated. The village was basically wiped out. No lives were lost, but you know, he spoke about how difficult it's been and how, you know, his family who, they live in the city, but um, they've been really trying to help um, the folks who are on the farm in the village who have just like lost their whole livelihood. Um, but my my farm is in, in the middle of Sindh and there are 45 families who are dependent on the farm uh, and they were all wiped out. Now there's a question of getting seed to them um, in time to plant. We are more focused at the moment to provide seeds uh, uh, to the farmers because it is planting season for wheat. If we miss it, then there will be hunger next next, next year. So there is a personal angle to, yeah. to recover. It really, I think, illustrates how um, climate disasters can wreak this damage that lasts a really long time after the floodwaters recede. Um, and the, you know, it, the scale of, of the impact um, and the, the financial toll and the humanitarian toll um, 
can can extend a long time after. And what did he tell you? What was his main message at this conference that he was hoping to convey? Yeah, I mean, he obviously is chair of the G77. He's quite strongly in favor of this loss and damage fund. The climate disaster is, is a new and growing phenomenon for which these emergency measures that were created are not, you know, are not capable of responding. Uh, and we think that, therefore, there is a, uh, a quasi-legal obligation under the Convention for the countries which suffer loss and damage due to climate change to have access uh, you know, on the basis of climate justice. And I think he recognizes the political challenges that it faces. Uh, we are obviously um, not naive to believe that you know we will achieve an, a result immediately. Uh, we, there, there is a two-year timeline that's been provided. But some of our members in the Group of 77 feel that you know, we ought to have a decision on a mechanism within one year or within two years, if not one year. There's and a real so resistance, so I think, to oftentimes loss and damage or funding for loss and damage gets talked about as a form of climate reparations. And I think that's because that phrasing is so charged, because mm. these negotiations are so like every single comma and semicolon is like debated. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of caution about terms like that. But I think, you know, basically Akram said that it's clear, the need is clear. Um, the moral argument and the logical argument he thinks is, is quite clear. And, you know, when I asked him about the U.S. stance that maybe we better to find some other mechanism, he said, you know, I'd be willing to consider it because my interest is not in setting up a new fund. It's in, in making sure that the resources are available to people who need it. But he wasn't convinced that there are other mechanisms. Even humanitarian funds can, it takes a while to, to you know, for a country to say, to like pull money out of its treasury and, and transfer it. And, and, and the World Bank can't act very quickly. And, um, you know, the, he basically said, like, I think this is, this has to be the model because I, you know, I can't really imagine what else would work. We will need to discuss it. Uh, the idea is to get to, get to the objective. It's not um, it's not that we want to prove a point, uh, but we need something that can respond quickly to climate disasters. If the U.S., you, anybody can come up with a good proposal, we look at it, absolutely. Um, but we think that it's necessary. Uh, we think it's just, uh, and we think it's urgent. After the break, we talk with Sarah about what the U.S. is doing at COP27 and why President Biden is taking a victory lap at the conference. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. 
Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. So President Biden is attending this conference as well. Let's talk about what the United States is doing here. What are the U.S.'s priorities? Yeah. So I think, I mean, part of it is, um, you know, President Biden wanting to come, I think especially, you know, he achieved a major agenda item when the Inflation Reduction Act was passed earlier this year. Over the past two years, the United States has delivered unprecedented progress at home through a generational investment in upgrading our nation's infrastructure. We're making our power grid better able to transmit clean energy, expanding public transit and rail, building nationwide network of electric vehicle charging stations, over 50,000. So the Inflation Reduction Act is the biggest piece of climate policy ever passed in the U.S. It had, you know, billions of dollars to help prioritize renewable energy, um, to make buildings more efficient. Um, You know, there's funding in there for for communities that are kind of on the front lines of climate change or of fossil fuel pollution to you know address environmental justice issues, um, it while it was not as big an investment as Biden had pitched when he was running for president and as he'd been seeking you know for I guess more than a year at that point, um, it still is the biggest piece of climate policy ever passed in the U.S. and also. You know, scientists have recently done an analysis of kind of the policies that the world has and what they imply for the world's warming trajectory. And they said that the the Inflation Reduction Act was the biggest single thing that happened in the past year in terms of putting the world on a slightly better warming path. Um, It probably shaved about 0.1 degrees Celsius of warming off of, you know, the path that we're on, which like is not a lot, but is also a lot because, you know, scientists always say every 10th of the degree counts. So I think, I mean, um, certainly he's trying to, uh, you know, he wants to like get some kudos for, for some pats on the back. (laughs) Yeah. Some pats on the back. Um, I think the other sort of point that is worth making is that like, it's debatable whether or not the U S is actually on the right path. Um, Mm. both because, so far, we have not fully implemented the policies that are needed to fulfill our climate target. The Inflation Reduction Act gets us part of the weight there, but not all the way. And then the other idea is just that because, again, the U.S. is the biggest historical emitter, is it enough to just shoot for a 52% reduction? Like, should the U.S. be trying to reduce emissions even more and sending more money to developing countries to help them reduce their own emissions out of a sense of historical responsibility. Is there any big notable absence at this conference? Yeah, I mean, so there's some world leaders who haven't attended, um, notably, um, uh, you know, the leaders from from China and India aren't here, which is significant because they're two of the biggest emitters. Um, and also, you know, some activists who we've come to expect at these conferences, including Greta Thunberg, who's the you know famous um, teen activist from Sweden who became famous for 
um, having a strike every Friday in front of the Swedish parliament and for giving these kind of flame throwing speeches at UN conferences. She is not attending this year uh, in part because of Egypt's human rights record. Uh, The country has very strict restrictions on, on public gatherings and has jailed hundreds of activists. And actually right at this moment, the, the most famous political prisoner here in Egypt, um, a British Egyptian activist named Ella Abdel Fattah, has been on a, a water strike actually since COP began. He had already been on a hunger strike and he decided to stop drinking water because he feels like COP is this moment when the eyes of the world are on Egypt is kind of his best chance of being released. And he has said that he wants freedom either through death or through being released from prison. And actually on Thursday, the Egyptian government um, medically intervened with his strike. And that's been, you know, both the Alaz case and the case of other activists who have been jailed and the sort of broader dynamic of, of not being able to protest here in Egypt has been another huge kind of undercurrent at this conference. Um, activists here tell me that they feel um, really intimidated and uh, are worried about surveillance. Actually, the app that wow. you, the COP app that like lets you sort of have the map and like the schedule and things um, requires these permissions to access your location and your contacts that cybersecurity experts say could be used to, to track people. Um, so it's a, it's a quite tense mood here um, in ways that are like completely unconnected to the actual climate talks, but are just because of where we are in the, um, the human rights situation here in Egypt. And, and Sarah, I wonder if there are people who care deeply about these issues like global warming and reducing carbon emissions, which is what's being discussed at COP. And the whole idea is to tackle these big existential but real problems. Are there people like that who care about that but are skeptical that a big global gathering like this, like COP, is really the best way or is effective at all? Yeah. I mean, that's a fair question. Um, I think it's a question that people here ask themselves, you know, this is the 27th COP and in the time since these meetings began, emissions have increased, you know, very significantly, right? Like we are emitting more now than we were when we first kind of acknowledged the problem and agreed to do something about it. And we are on this really terrifying trajectory. There's not really any way to sugarcoat it. Uh, this <laughs> the truth. <laughs> I mean, COP is clearly not doing its job, right? Because if it was doing its job, then we wouldn't be in the situation right now. On the other hand, I think that, um, you know, everyone here says, yeah, COP is not achieving its goals, but it's also the only thing we have, right? It's the only process by which every single country on the planet um, gets can get together and, and try to figure out how to solve this planetary crisis. And, you know, even though we're not where we need to be, we are in a better situation than we might otherwise have been had these conferences not been happening. Um, I think, 
you know, in 2015, when the Paris Agreement was signed, and that's where the first time that the world committed to like a temperature target of we're not going to let warming get beyond this amount. Um, scientists were saying we could be headed for like four degrees Celsius of warming. And I mean, it could be civilization ending, right? And we're not on that trajectory anymore. Like scientists aren't, you know, think it's very, very unlikely that, that that's a scenario we have to that we we could face. So we have we have reined in the, the kind of range of of possible catastrophes um, somewhat and and we still can do it more, right? Like these trajectories can change. I mean I think that that's you know the thing that keeps people hopeful and keeps people coming back here year after year is that like again every tenth of a degree counts, right? We may not hit this 1.5 C target of warming, but 1.6 C is still better than than where we're headed. It's still better than 1.7, and 1.7 is still better than 1.8. I mean, every degree that we avoid, every ton of carbon that we avoid, scientists say, means we've avoided additional suffering. And I think, you know, that seems worth it. That seems worth the work and the, the chaos of these conferences to, to the people who come here. Thank you, Sarah, so much for your time. Yeah, thanks, Alehe. Sarah Kaplan is a climate reporter for The Post. The story was produced by Eliza Dennis. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by our engineer, Sean Carter, and edited by Rena Flores, our supervising senior producer. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Ted Muldoon is our senior producer. My co-host is Martine Powers. Lucy Perkins is our editor. Our producers are Eliza Dennis, Sharla Freeland, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnik, Arjun Singh, Jordan Marie Smith, and Rennie Svernovsky. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are our assistant producers. The Post's director of audio is Renita Jablonski. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Class is in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.